What's up, guys? Welcome to FedEx. Today, we're going to react to the Unabomber, man. This is probably one of the biggest cases, the most expensive and longest investigation that the FBI has ever done as far as tracking a guy down. This is a big one, guys. Let's get right into it, man. This is going to be a good one. A special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. No one else has these documents, by the way. Here's what FedEx covers. Dr. Lafredo confirmed lacerations due to stepping on glass. Murder investigation. See him reaching in his jacket. You don't know. And he's positioning. Been on February 13, 2019. We are facing two counts of premeditated murder. Racketeering and Rico conspiracy. Young slime life here and after referred to as YSL. The defendants uh, 6 9 and then this is Billy Seiko right here. Now, when they first started, guys, 6 9 ran with. I'm a fed. I'm watching this music video. You know, I'm bobbing my head like, hey, this shit lit. But at the same time, I'm pausing. Oh, wait, who this? Right? Oh, who's that in the back? Firearms and violent crimes. AKA, Pushaisi violated. You're ordered to stay away from the victim. Pushaisi arrested after shooting at King of Diamonds, Miami Strip Club, injured one person. This is the one that's going to fuck him up because this gun is not traceable. Well, it happened at the gun range. Here's your boy, 42 Doug, right here on the left. Okay. Sex trafficking and sex crimes. They can effectively link him to paying an underage girl. And the first bomb went off right here. Inspired by Al Qaeda. Two terrorists, their brothers, the Zokar Sarnev and Tamer Lin Sarnev. When the cartel shipped drugs into the country. As this guy got arrested for um, espionage, okay, trading secrets with the Russians for monetary compensation. The largest corrupt police bust in New Orleans history. So he was in this bad boy. We're gonna go over his past, the gang ties, so that this all makes sense. All right, welcome back to Fetty, guys. I know some of you guys are like, oh my god, that intro so long. Oh my god. Hey guys, it helps me prepare. It gives you guys kind of an insight to what we talk about. This is a diversified channel. We talk about all different types of crimes, from terrorism to drugs to human smuggling, human trafficking. Uh, we're going to do bank robberies here very soon. Uh, I'm going to do a big bank robbery case for y'all. Uh, shootouts, all that stuff, man. This channel is extremely diversified. Racketeering cases, gang cases, violent crime, all that stuff is covered here, man. Any crime that you could think of, we're probably going to cover it. Um, I'm good. I, you know, I got a couple of cases on in the works that I'm working on right now, guys. I'm working on Whitey Bulger for some of you guys, right? One of my favorite stories right there. He was the most wanted man after Osama bin Laden. Um, I'm also going to go ahead and give you all the Michael Vick uh, dogfighting case. Um, so, yeah, man, we're going to we're going to switch things around and give you guys a whole multitude of different types of criminals to cover. But on today's episode, guys, we're going to go over a serial killer bomber, a.k.a. the Unabomber, guys. This was the most expensive and longest FBI investigation in its history, guys. He evaded them for nearly 20 years. And we're going to be reacting to a documentary that covers the entire situation from beginning to end. And um, this is a really interesting story, guys. So without further ado, as you guys know, I always do the breakdowns off of this show called FBI Files. Back uh, the show um, came from the early uh, late 90s, and then it went on into the early 2000s. It's discontinued now, but it's a really good documentary. Uh, it's a little old. Sometimes it's a little cheesy with the reenactments, but it's still good stuff, man. So let's go ahead and play this thing real fast. Um, I'm going to just adjust some of the screens here, guys. You know, you got a one-man show here. So, uh, cool. So, let's go ahead and start playing this thing. Here it is right here. FBI Files, guys, always remember to like the video, subscribe to the channel, show some support. Okay? And without further ado, 
Let's get into breaking this thing down, okay? Let's get into it. Um, Enlarger for you guys. And bam. And I'll stop it, you know, for commentary when needed. For nearly two decades, a mathematical genius with delusions of single-handedly destroying industrial society planted or mailed powerful bombs to unsuspecting innocent victims. It was a spree of mayhem that killed three and wounded over two dozen. In the largest and most expensive investigation in FBI history, agents spent 17 years hunting for the elusive terrorist known as the Unibomb. It's a big one, guys. The first bomb came in the spring of 1978. The damage it caused was minimal, but its impact would be enormous. With each new detonation, the bomber learned a little more about bombs, and law enforcement learned a little more about the man who sent them. Because its targets were universities and airlines, the FBI called him the Unabomber. I'm Jim Kalstrom, former director of the FBI's New York office. Before we he was actually the special agent in charge, but most people wouldn't understand what that means so that he just says director. But what that means is he was a special agent in charge, which is the SES or, you know, senior executive level uh, manager. So he was the one running the office. Um, you know, everyone went through him to get anything done. So uh, that's what he was, guys. Or a.k.a. the FBI calls it SAIC is what the FBI calls it. When I worked for HSI, we used to call a SAC special agent in charge, but it's the same exact thing. We ever knew the name Ted Kaczynski. We knew we were dealing with a disgruntled genius. We just didn't know how smart or how angry he truly was or how far he'd go. But while the unit IQ somewhere in the 160s, guys, right around Albert Einstein level. Obama was carefully perfecting his bombs. We were refining our profile. It was all a matter of who would finish first. On May 25th, 1978, an engineering professor named Buckley Christ at Northwestern University in Evanston, Illinois, appeared in the mailroom with a shoebox-sized parcel. Professor Christ was listed as the return addressee, and he didn't know the man it was addressed to. Campus security guard Terry Marker cracked, maybe it's a bomb. How right he was. Goddamn. As bombs go, it wasn't much of them. It began a 20-year streak of violence that would stump the FBI and terrorize the nation. On November 15, 1979, American Airlines Flight 444 took off from Chicago, bound for Washington, D.C. As the Boeing 727 reached cruising altitude, the cabin filled with smoke. It was pandemonium. And just so you guys know, that security officer that got hit in, on May 25th and 78, he just got injured. He didn't die. So um, some minor injuries, but at this point, right, obviously the Unabomber is in the infant stages of uh, building bombs. The plane was diverted to Dulles Airport in Virginia, 
a dozen people were treated for smoke inhalation. But for a faulty wire in the bomb, over a hundred people would have been killed. And the thing is, guys, is if that bomb had went off, it would have destroyed the plane. They 100% would have uh, would have got pretty messed up. Everyone on that plane would have died. Um, they're just lucky that, you know, obviously um, at the time, the Unabomber had not refined his craft yet. Bombing an airliner is a federal offense. The FBI was called in. FBI agent Chris Ronay examined the evidence of the airline bomb. Prior to 9-11, of course. It essentially was a wooden box that looked uh, to be hand-fashioned, uh, handmade. We found that it contained a uh, barometric switch and uh, some other uh, initiating components, batteries, wires, and uh, a container for the explosive charge. The barometric switch would function when the pressure changed in the baggage compartment sufficiently to close the switch or allow the barometric switch to function and then actually detonate the bomb. Pretty clever scheme, as you guys can see here. The use of an altitude-sensitive barometric switch told the FBI that they were dealing with a serious and smart bomber. Yep. Rone began his inquiries with the Chicago police. He was looking for anything to compare to the airline device. And remember, guys, this is 1979, you know, so this is prior to 9-11 or the formalization of, you know, uh, terrorist attacks being fairly common on U.S. soil. So they didn't have really like a, something that they can go ahead and, you know, look to. You know, nowadays, right, with bombs, they're able to look at the bomb and decipher, okay, this comes from, you know, Al-Qaeda types people or this is, um, you know, Islam extremists uh, or this might be from some Cuban, uh, you know, Cuban nationalists that are going crazy. Typically, you're able to identify the maker of the bomb based on how the bomb is constructed. But in this case, this is still fairly early in the FBI's journey to thwart terrorism. And um, they didn't, they had never come up uh, uh, on something like this before, you know, obviously with a wooden shell, um, a sophisticated wire wiring system that, you know, detonates based off of altitude. This is crazy stuff, right? At Northwestern University, a thorough search uncovered the existence of two minor and seemingly unrelated incidents at the university. In addition to learning of the device that injured Terry Marker, Rone learned of another. On May 9th, 1979, another bomb had gone off at Northwestern University, seriously injuring graduate student John Harris. Its design was nearly identical to the first one. But since they were both relatively minor incidents, authorities at the time didn't connect the two. Dismissing those devices as amateurish pranks, the recovered debris was discarded. Working only from photographs, Chris Ronay concluded that all three bombs were the work of the same person. There were construction techniques, the way the wood was cut, the way it was put together, the markings on the wood, the way the tape was applied, that is evident in the photographs, was the same as in the previous cases. The pipe bombs placed inside wooden boxes were all made of ordinary components screws and nails and smokeless powder and black tape.
So you got yourself a serial bomber right now. Okay, so obviously this is going to have the FBI on high alert. The components were homemade and sanded to render them untraceable. Certain components were not crafted as much as fondled and played with and looked at, and you could see they were handled and shaped and reshaped. And it just struck me that somebody spent an awful lot of time on this bomb, uh, enjoying putting it together. The FBI realized they were dealing with a serial bomber, one that was passionate about his craft. And guys, typically when you use the term serial to define maybe a serial killer or a serial bomber, whatever, typically it means they have a certain pattern and trend and how they commit their crimes and how they perpetrate the crime, okay? That's typically what a serial killer, serial bomber, serial anything typically means. No, not serial from like, you know, with milk or whatever, but serial as in they, they commit their crimes in a certain fashion and it follows this trend, okay? In the 1950s, a shy, highly intelligent boy from suburban Illinois named Ted Kaczynski skipped a grade in elementary school. Now we're going into the Unabomber's background. He was an introvert, preferring to withdraw into his room to study, especially to study chemistry. He was a prodigy with genius-level intelligence. His IQ topped 170. Yeah, he was scored between he 160 and 170. And graduated in three years in 1962. Went to Harvard, graduated in three years, guys. Wild. In five years, he had received his doctorate from the University of Michigan. As an assistant professor of mathematics at the University of California, Berkeley, Kaczynski was not a popular or outgoing professor. Practically no one got to know him. In 1969, he abruptly resigned. The social nature of his teaching position was too much for Ted. He just didn't seem to fit in. Yeah, he was extremely shy, guys. He didn't like really being around people. When people spoke to him, he was very shy and timid. So he was a very reclusive person. By 1971, Kaczynski had decided to drop out of society completely. He bought an acre and a half of land in a rural area just outside of Lincoln, Montana. 6,000 feet above the society he had come to despise. Bam. He built a tiny 8 by 10 foot cabin with no electricity or running water. There he would sit by himself, reading and writing. One of the things Ted wrote was a 23-page essay raging against modern man's obsession with technological and scientific progress. Could you imagine if he was around today seeing what the hell's going on? He'd be fucking pissed with Instagram and all these girls running around taking pictures and shit, man. <laughs> Scientific research he wrote will inevitably result in the extinction of individual liberty. He sent a copy to his brother, David. David read it. He's kind of right. Look at all the censoring, man. I mean, hell, they just canceled Andrew Tate. You know, we get in trouble sometimes. Um... Yeah, think about it. The tech, these uh, these tech companies have really been going crazy, man. So, uh, and he's still alive, guys. He still hasn't passed away. He's 80 years old now. He was born in 1942. He's still alive. Uh, and we'll talk about that where he's at here towards the end. And stuck it in a trunk where it sat for a quarter of a century. In June of 1978, 
Ted Kaczynski took a timeout from his cabin to take a job working for his brother at a foam cutting plant in Illinois. Ted's bizarre behavior became too much. His brother was forced to fire him. Ted had insulted a female co-worker who had refused his advances. Ted seized and within a year moved back to his cabin in Montana, vowing never to see his family again. Hey, she didn't want to smash, man, with all that good, <laughs> with all that genius intellect, man. God damn. If only that girl had smashed him, we probably wouldn't have never met the Unabomber. See, man, women be the root of all evil, guys. <laughs> Trying to fit in as a social being was too frustrating for the introverted genius. Ted withdrew even more believing modern man incapable of understanding him. He was starting to see civil society as an obstacle that needed to be overcome. In time, Ted became acclimated to his life of few luxuries. He took it upon himself to grow his own food and to be otherwise self-sufficient. He had few acquaintances, opting for his own company in the Montana wilds. Ted rarely made it into Lincoln. When he did, it was usually to bury his face in reference books in the small town library. On May 3rd, 1980, Ted Kaczynski rode his homemade bike into Lincoln. He wasn't going to the library this time. Instead, he caught a bus for Helena and checked into the Helena Park Hotel for a brief stay. The next day, he headed west. Ted had urgent business that needed tending to. We'll see what that urgent business here in a second. Percy Wood, the president of United Airlines, received a parcel at his suburban Chicago home on June 10th, 1980. A few days earlier, he received a letter from a stranger promising to mail him a book which the letter said had tremendous social significance. Uh-oh, here we go. Wood placed the package on his kitchen counter. He opened and retrieved a book, Ice Brothers by Sloan Wilson. Ice Brothers. Wood was puzzled. Why is this book socially significant? He opened the cover. Bam. Oh shit! Oh shit! Wood was nearly killed. The bomber had upped the ante considerably with his fourth and most powerful device yet. FBI and ATF bomb technicians poured over the scene. It was quickly identified as the work of the serial bomber. And here's the book, by the way, guys, written in 1979, Ice Brothers, okay, hardcover. This is the book that he sent him by Sloan Wilson. I'm wondering why this book in particular, um, what this book is about. 
guess I'll do some research here. But um, yeah, very interesting. Each bomb so far had been a pipe bomb with similar construction and wiring. On this, the fourth bomb, the bomber had left a calling card. Punched into a piece of rubble were the letters FC. Certainly the initial... Oh, so now they have um, a marker to identify um, the work of this particular bomber, a.k.a. the Unabomber. The FC were put in these bombs to be found clearly protected in such a way that they would survive the blasts. Uh, it didn't make any sense to have it in there. It didn't function any in any way. It's a book about, um, as far as Ice Brothers goes, guys, it's a book about World War II um, and the surge of patriotism uh, following the bombing of Pearl Harbor. No purpose except to say, here's my, uh, my signature. Here's an identifying feature. The FBI could only speculate what FC meant. By this time, FBI investigators had already given him a name. And you guys are going to see the significance of FC here. And this was actually pretty smart by the Unabomber to employ this tactic. He bombed universities and airlines. They called him Unabomb, UN for university and A for airline. Naming him was easy. Finding him would be much, much more difficult. And just so you guys know, the FBI knows what they're doing here when they name criminals and give them certain nicknames. Because the thing is, is when they're going to go ahead and they have a big case like this and they have a target that more than likely they're going to have difficulty finding or whatever, they're going to give the person a catchy name so that when they do go to the media, when they do go to the public and say, hey, we need tips, etc., they're going to be able to go ahead and use that name to almost market the individual, Right so that the people will remember, oh, that's that Unabomber guy. I think I've heard about him. Let me call it to the FBI, blah, blah, blah. So the FBI does take a good amount of time, guys. That's You know, I got to give them their flowers here. They do take them a good amount of time to come up with a catchy name for the person to market that individual so it sticks in the public's uh, mind so that they're more likely to call in with tips. Now, do they get a lot of bullshit tips when stuff like this happens? Of course. However, all you need is one good tip. I've always said it, guys. The, the law enforcement only has got to get lucky one time, whereas the criminal has to be perfect all the time. In 1981, with FC their best clue yet, the FBI cross-referenced thousands of people with those initials. But the Unabomber was not sitting idle. In October, a package was found sitting in a building at the University of Utah. It was a pipe bomb. Fortunately, it was a dud. Investigators now had a device intact. Perhaps a component was traceable. Okay, now this is huge. Because now that the bomb is intact, guys, they can actually go and look at it and, again... I tell you guys all the time, with these bombs, you're able to detect a lot from the maker, the individual that's involved, from constructing the piece through how they build it. And obviously, this is a very unique signature of the Unabomber that is done with wood. It would take time to find out. The Unabomber remained busy. In the spring of 1982, a package meant for Professor Leroy Wood Berenson blew up instead in the hands of an academic assistant at Vanderbilt University. Oh, shit. 
The bomb was made of the usual materials, with the initials FC on the surviving wreckage. Examiners spent endless hours studying every minute detail of the Unibomb devices. The most bizarre clues suddenly emerged. The last two people specifically targeted were named Wood. Wood played such an important role in every one of the bombs. I mean, it was present in every one of the bombs, even when it didn't need to be. He, in fact, if, if he didn't have wood in it, he threw wood in it, sticks of wood, just so they'd be there. Again, that's what makes him a serial bomber, guys, because he's keeping a certain trend, keeping a certain signature to his works of destruction. There were references to wood in addresses and names of people throughout. FBI lab examiner Doug Diedrich of the Trace Evidence Unit is also a wood expert. Well, the materials may indicate something about that individual, may indicate where he might live, what he might do for a living. And that's one of the things that I was involved with, especially in trying to determine where these types of woods came from, uh, what geographical area, what part of the country. This approach seemed like a long shot, but the scarcity of clues left investigators with few options. As the FBI investigation intensified, so did the power of the Unabomber's devices. Mm, so he's getting more refined, getting better at what he's doing, honing his craft, guys. Because obviously, keep in mind, he's clearly tuning into the news, reading the paper, seeing how the bombs do, the injuries of the individuals involved. So he's quickly figuring out, damn, these bombs aren't strong enough. I need to make them stronger. On July 2nd, 1982, Professor Diogenes Angelakos of the University of California, Berkeley, a devoted husband and a popular teacher, noticed a strange looking object on the floor. And this is the university he used to work at as a math teacher, guys. ...of the computer science department's coffee room. I guess he had beef with the computer science people. He's like, fuck that math. It's math section all the way, baby. <laughs> Puts a bomb in that bitch. The explosion seriously wounded him and tore off his fingers. God damn. As he lay dazed, he found a typewritten note. Woo, it works. I told you it would. RV. Wow. The FBI ran down everyone in America named Woo and everyone with the initials RV, a monumental labor-intensive task. But to so now we got that little tip and we got the FC. And you guys are going to see here why the Unabomber did this. No avail. This is the, problem. the note was a ruse. Another lead surfaced the day following the blast. A custodian who worked in Corey Hall, the building where the bomb... So you see this dark figure just put a package down there. You're like, uh, okay. Exploded. So custodian sees him. Dude has his head shifted like this. Saw a man with a thin mustache and sweatshirt loitering in the hall the night before. Yeah, he's like, nah, I'm good, bro. <laughs> the custodian, however, well, one more time, we gotta play that shit. Hold on, hold on. Imagine you're the fucking custodian, right? And you're just working at night and you see this shit. This is the, problem, the note was a ruse. She's gonna have to do it over again. It's gonna take how long? 
So you're working late night, you know, cleaning, you know, minding your own business. Everything's chilling. You know, you're just like, okay, I'm out here working hard, getting that overtime. Another lead surfaced the day following the blast. See some dude come in dark and put a package down. A custodian who worked in Corey Hall, the building where the bomb exploded. And you're like, what the, what the fuck are you doing? There was a bomb that just went off here not too long ago. Saw a man with a thin mustache and sweatshirt loitering in the hall. Yeah, like, nah, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, that, that, that doesn't look uh, a little off. Look, 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 look the way he has his head tilted. Following the blast. Dude, shit. A custodian who worked in Corey Hall. He looks at him like, don't even try it, buddy. Uh, I'm, uh, this thing is going off. Where the bomb exploded. Tilts his head like this. What you want to do? Custodian's like, saw a man. Oh, what you want to do, buddy? Custodian's like, uh, and thin mustache and sweatshirt loitering in the hall. Yeah, y'all don't pay before. me enough for this. I'm good. <laughs> the custodian, however, was unable to remember oh. enough details to help the sketch artist make a composite. Angelakos was critically wounded, requiring a lengthy hospital stay. So I'd actually, he was just like, nope, I'm good. He was no longer able to care for his invalid wife. She died within a month of the blast. Damn, couldn't care for his sick wife. In May of 1985. So we have a bunch of bombs going off, guys, but no one has died yet. People have just been injured. In that same building, Berkeley graduate student John Hauser, a captain in the Air Force, noticed on the floor a three-ring binder sitting on top of another object. Once again, UC Berkeley. Boom. At this point, guys, we're up to one, two. That's eight bombs now at this point, guys. Hauser had just applied for astronaut training. What he didn't know as he lay wounded was that he had already been accepted into the program. Oh, man. But he would never fly again. His Air Force Academy ring was found embedded in the wall across the room. Ironically, Professor Angelakos was nearby when the bomb exploded. He rushed to help Hauser. It's like, I've been here before, son. I got you. Unabomb-related crime scene investigations conducted by the FBI, ATF, and the United States Postal Service had become frustratingly routine. Okay, so you guys may be wondering, hey, why the hell is the ATF involved? Because, hey, is it doesn't stand for alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. Yes, guys, they also do explosives. It's called the Bureau of Alcohol. It's actually supposed to be called the BATF, which is the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives. So, yes, the ATF also does explosives as well, guys. Typically, when there's a bomb used or an explosion, ATF will work together alongside the FBI and, um, you know, work the case uh, together. And in this case, the Postal Inspection Service was working because Obviously, the bombs were coming through the mail. So this was a joint effort between the three agencies. Obviously, it's a terrorism case, so FBI is going to take lead. But the ATF and Postal Inspection Service were also involved. And postal inspectors, guys, they're full law enforcement. They're the same thing as a, as a regular special agent. They just have a different title called Postal Inspector. But their job series is still 1811, okay, which is the name of this channel. That's why I named it FEDA 1811. 1811 is a job series code for special agent in the U.S. government, whether you work for DEA, FBI, ATF, Postal Inspector, Secret Service, whatever it is, OSI. It's all 1811s. The recovered bomb components were packaged and sent to the FBI lab for future comparisons. Over the next few years, there would be many such examinations. On May 8th, 1985, 
a package was received at the Boeing Corporation in Auburn, Washington. It was addressed only to the company, was heavy, and had too much postage. Hey, Mark, look at this. A suspicious mailroom employee called security. The package was x-rayed and shown to contain a pipe bomb. It had FC stamped into the end caps. Had the employee opened the package, it most likely would have killed him and anyone else nearby. Yep. Lucky him. On November 15, 1985, Dr. James McConnell, a psychology professor at the University of Michigan, received a letter and package from a Ralph C. Kloppenberg. And also, just so you guys know, that bomb that didn't hurt anybody um, at the Boeing Foundation Fabrication Division, it, they safely detonated it, but they lost a lot of the forensic evidence. I'm getting this directly from the FBI website here. I got some notes. The sender described himself as a doctoral student. I'd like you to read this book, he wrote. Everyone in your position should read this book. As he read, his assistant opened the package nearby. The explosion seriously injured the assistant and blew out the hearing of Dr. McConnell. And guys, this is the 10th bomb now at this point, okay? So from the from uh, 1978 all the way to 1985, um, we've been up to 10 bombs. Examiners continued to dissect the bombs. They were evolving as the Unabomber refined his craft. Exhaustive lab tests showed they were getting more sophisticated and more powerful. Yep. So as an investigator, you're, get, you're getting scared because... Like, obviously, each bomb gives you more evidence to try to figure out who the guy is. But each bomb is becoming stronger and stronger, which means the likelihood of someone dying from one of these bombs going off is going to increase. And obviously, as an investigator, you don't want that to happen. Agents were frustrated. They were making little progress in determining the identity of the Unabomber. And he was throwing in little things like that, like the little note, FC, etc., He's putting these little things on the bombs, guys, so that he can throw people off so that they wouldn't be able to detect them and get on his trail, which was actually very smart for him to do this. This is something that a lot of serial killers don't do, um, where they purposely put information in there to throw off investigators. Okay. Well, some of them do, some of them don't. And their analysis was confirming what they already knew. If the packages kept coming, it would only be a matter of time before someone was killed. Hugh Scruton owned the Rentec computer store in Sacramento, California. On December 11, 1985, about lunchtime, Scruton headed out the back door that led to the rear parking lot when he noticed something. It looked like a block of wood with four nails sticking out points up. The explosion was ferocious, blowing a massive gaping hole into Scruton's chest, exposing his heart. Wow. The Unabomber was now a murderer. First kill, guys. It took uh, several years, but December 11, 1985, he strikes his first kill. So now this has become a homicide. The bomb that killed Hugh Scruton was the most powerful yet. It consisted of a pipe within a pipe 
and contained all of the same characteristics as the others, right down to the FC stamped on a surviving end cap. The Unabomber investigation was now officially a homicide case. Investigators stuck to their strategy of keeping the details of the case secret, lest the Unabomber learn what they knew, or worse, lest they encourage copycats. Agents were desperate for a solid lead. This is Sacramento. Ted Kaczynski was always active in his secluded cabin. When he wasn't making bombs, he was writing his philosophy that justified them. For Ted Kaczynski, technological society was a horror, defined by the Earth's destruction and human beings amounting to little more than mindless robots. In Ted's story, anyone who was participating in the human race's dependency on technology was a villain. On February 20th, 1987, a secretary at Cam's computer store in Salt Lake City looked out of her office window and caught a glimpse of a man in the parking lot, placing an object on the ground. Oh, shit. Same, it looks like the same guy that the janitor saw before. An hour later, the store's owner, Gary Wright, was in the parking lot. He noticed the object on the ground. It was a block of wood with four nails sticking out, points up. Same way as the Sacramento one. Fuck. Wright received serious injuries, but miraculously survived. These guys are lucky. As police scoured bus stations and local businesses. So now they're going crazy, guys, right? Obviously, the FBI is like, yo, we got to find this guy. So now they're starting to do press conferences. And they have a sketch or a sketch of him, finally. Businesses looking for a suspect. A sketch was commissioned from the secretary's description. That was the only woman that was able to actually catch a glimpse of him prior to him being caught. It was unquestionably the portrait of a man in disguise. The sketch didn't catch the Unabomber, but in one way it may have worked. Knowing he was seen, the Unabomber seemed to vanish. After nine years of bombings, Unabomber-related incidents simply stopped after the 1987 CAMS explosion. Bam. The Took investigation a break. had continued, but all available leads had been exhausted. After six years of silence, investigators were hopeful that the Unabomber had either been imprisoned on some unrelated charge or died. Either way, the bombs had stopped. That's what they were hoping. But Ted Kaczynski was neither dead nor in jail. He had spent the last six years virtually alone. Content in his day-to-day -day routine. He rode his bike everywhere. Obviously, as you guys know, he hated... Um... You know, he hated technology, didn't really want to use cars, etc. Tending the garden, hunting, writing, and visiting the library. Ted always managed to stay on top of current events. In 1993, after a six-year hiatus, several highly publicized events propelled the Unabomber out of retirement. The fiery siege at Waco, Texas, between the ATF and the Branch Davidian religious cult. And the...
And I will go ahead and cover that as well. That's the Waco siege. A lot of you guys asked me for that. I will break that down. And then this one I had already done. Bombing of the World Trade Center created a violent political environment. And I covered the World Trade Center bombing, guys, just so you know, real quick, if you want to find that. Because um, that video didn't get pushed as much in the algorithm, guys. But I'll show you guys rough, real fast here. Here it is. If you go to my channel, fed it, right? Your channel, bang. It's right here, guys. And actually, check this out. What I did was, guys, I actually organized everything for you guys. So I got my most popular stuff right here. Then right after, I got all my uploads here. So this is the clips, documentaries, and the live streams all together. Then right after that, we got all the live stream podcasts here. Okay. Then I went ahead and broke down the documentaries here. Okay, guys. Um, and they're all chronological order from newest to oldest. And as you can see, here's the 1993 World Trade Center bombing. I broke this one down as well for you guys. This one was also an FBI Files reaction. It was really good, man. I went ahead and put meticulous timestamps in there for you guys. That breaks down every component of how the FBI was able to identify the bombers, apprehend, and then charge them and get them all convicted. And I also talked about how, um, you know, one of the bombers actually made it, etc. Very thorough breakdown, guys. A breakdown. Uh, ter- uh, this was probably one of the first um, terrorist attacks from like a foreign power. Okay, from a foreign country, a lot of the guys here that were, you know, from Pakistan and the Middle East, etc. So yeah, man, go check this one out. Um, but anyway, back to the back to the pod here. The Unabomber would return in a fit of violence of his own. Yeah, he was like, "Hey, these Arabs can't do better than me, man." He, they, they made him step up his game because obviously the World Trade Center bombing was crazy, man. That thing destroyed uh, the World Trade Center, blew a gaping hole in the parking lot. And I give more details on that episode, guys. So go check that one out. Dr. Charles Epstein is a renowned geneticist at the University of San Francisco. On June 22nd, 1993, he sat down at his kitchen table to open his mail, including a padded envelope which had arrived that day. The blast critically injured Dr. Epstein. After two and a half hours of surgery, he was stabilized and very lucky to be alive. Two days later, on June 24th, Dr. David Galerner, a prominent computer scientist at Yale University, arrived early at his office to open his mail from the previous day. Holy shit. Bombs going off everywhere, guys. So he comes back with a vengeance, obviously. Injured in his right arm, eye, and abdomen. Galerner struggled to his feet and went out the door for help. The FBI quickly determined that the Epstein bomb and the Galerner bomb were identical. Pipe bombs filled with potassium chlorate and aluminum powder. Both devices had been placed inside a handcrafted wooden box. A few hours after the Galerner bomb went off, a letter was received in the mailroom of the New York Times. It was from a self-proclaimed anarchist group called FC, who were claiming responsibility for the recent bombings. Oh, FC. 
if you guys remember, that was from the bombs before he was using that um that uh, moniker on the older model bombs. FC promised more communications in the future. An identifying number was provided to the Times to ensure the authenticity of future communications. It was 553-254394. The FBI determined that the number was a social security number of a 20-year-old parolee in Northern California, incredibly with a tattoo on his arm reading pure wood. An investigation quickly dismissed him as the unicorn. See, throwing, throwing the investigators off. Another major clue was discovered. Impressed into the paper on the New York Times letter was the faint notation, Call Nathan R. Wednesday, 7 p.m. The elusive Unabomber finally provided agents with a solid lead. The FBI talked to over 10,000 people whose first name was Nathan and whose last name began with R. The exhaustive search turned up nothing. It seemed the Unabomber loved sending the FBI on wild goose chases. Smart. Keep him off his trail. The Times ran the letter, which sparked public interest. It also drew the FBI into dozens of false leads. Disgruntled students, aircraft engineers, even a Dungeons and Dragons club in Chicago. <laughs> <laughs> Do you imagine they're playing some uh, dragons, uh, you know, <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons at, at the hobby shop on a Saturday? Next thing you know, FBI, open and then they come in and break in and take all their Magic of the Gathering cards and all their Warhammer and all that other shit, and they just raid the fucking place trying to figure out who the fucking bomber is, man. <laughs> oh lord! The latest round of activity had sent the FBI investigation into overdrive. A Unabomb task force consisting of FBI, ATF, and postal inspectors was formed to coordinate investigative efforts. Jim Freeman was the head of the FBI's San Francisco field office. He would also head the multi-agency Unabomb task force. We had evidence that was scattered around three different federal agencies and a lot of local state uh, laboratories. So we recognized that uh, our task was to was to gain control of the information that was already out there, determine what investigation had already been been done, and we set about this by deciding to reinvestigate every Unabom crime. Every shred of physical evidence that remained from past Unabomber devices would be given to one forensic examiner. Special Agent Tom Monell of the FBI Laboratory's Materials and Devices Unit became the chief examiner for the investigation. And this is typically what you want to do, guys. When you are when you have a case and you have someone examining stuff, you know, whether it's forensic stuff or evidence or whatever, maybe you have like some kind of subject matter expert, you always want to use that same guy for everything because they're going to be aware of the case. They're going to be aware of the facts. Um, like when I had an investigation, I needed like stuff to be examined, a forensic examiner. I would always use the same agent to do it for me because uh, that agent will be invested. They would help you. And, you know, for big investigations like this, you typically want someone that's dedicated to the case um, and they can go ahead and open their own case on their end, obviously to document their hours, write their reports, et cetera, on your case. And that handles all the forensic information on the investigation, it keeps things nice and clean and organized, or they can write reports on your case, either or, but you definitely want to use the same guy 
every single time, especially for big investigations like this, because you're going to need that person more than likely to come in and testify as a subject matter expert if the defendant ends up going to trial so they can talk about, um, you know, how they personally examined the information and how they were able to draw their conclusions. All the evidence in the Unabomb case, no matter if it was explosive related or not, came through me and my unit. In a serial bombing type case such as the Unabomb case, the most frustrating aspect was the fact that we were doing all forensic examinations that could possibly be done to the evidence, and it wasn't able to lead us to any individual. While the task force struggled, Kaczynski's warped revolution against society continued. On December 10th, 1994, advertising executive Thomas Moser was opening his mail in his North Caldwell, New Jersey home. His wife and two daughters were upstairs. He examined a small package with excessive postage from an H.C. Whittle, Department of Economics, San Francisco State University. The explosion was the most gruesome yet, instantly decapitating Thomas Moser. Wow. With every previous device. And there's no rhyme or reason. He's just, you know, sending this stuff out to random people, man, and, and getting them killed. Wild. In the Unabomber investigation, Agent Monell was able to reconstruct a replica, working only from the debris recovered from the various crime scenes. And that's actually really impressive that he was able to do that. Um, rep literally recreate each bomb off of the evidence left at the scene that was completely destroyed and mangled, he was able to replicate them. As with the 15 bombs he had reconstructed, this one was unquestionably the work of the Unabomber. A few months later, Ted Kaczynski prepared for an extended visit to the West Coast. This trip would be his busiest to date. On April 19, 1995, Ted Kaczynski was in the San Francisco Bay Area when Timothy McVeigh's 2,000-pound fuel oil bomb destroyed the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building in Oklahoma City, killing 168 people. And I will also cover the Oklahoma City bombing as well, guys, from Timothy McVeigh. So don't worry. Stay tuned for that one as well. I'm going to be covering all the big um, bombings, terrorist attacks, serial killer cases, etc. on this channel, man. So don't worry. I got y'all. I'm going to go ahead and give you guys your crime narrative fix from a former Fed. Don't forget to like the video, by the way, guys. Please like the video, subscribe to the channel, support me, man, because like I said, I do this channel for you guys. I really do enjoy breaking down these cases and watching these types of documentaries and giving you guys a little bit more insight as to how these investigations are done from the perspective of a former federal agent that used to do these investigations themselves. Like the video, please. Ted would not let his agenda be eclipsed by the devastation in Oklahoma. The next day, April 20th, the nation still reeling over Oklahoma City, Kaczynski mailed five items, four letters, and a parcel. Within a few days, the mail arrived back east. First was a letter to the New York Times. FBI Special Agent Terry Turchie was second in command of the Unabomb Task Force. In the letter to the New York Times, he mentioned that uh, he was claiming responsibility for the attacks on Thomas Moser, Charles Epstein, and David Galerter. He also mentioned some of his uh, goals and objectives and said that he was thinking of sending a manuscript or an essay and that he wanted them to consider publishing that essay. And if they did, he would make an agreement to cease committing terrorist acts. 
The second letter received was to recent victim David Gilenter at Yale. Still remember, he was he lost his eye pretty much. Recovering from his April wounding. The letter was taunting. Dr. Gilenter, people with advanced degrees are not as smart as they think they are. If you'd had any brains, you would have realized that there are a lot of people out there who resent bitterly the way techno-nerds like you are changing the world. On April 25th, 1995, a package arrived at the California Forestry Association addressed to its former president, William Dennison. Its current president, Gilbert Murray, decided to open it himself. Oh, shit. It exploded with incredible violence, destroying everything in the office. Gil Murray was literally blown to pieces. Four blocks away, the governor of California heard the blast from his office. The Unabomb scare was nationwide. Bomb threats. See, here's the postal inspectors, ATF on the scene, FBI. Were being reported everywhere. The FBI suspect list. One million dollar reward, guys. You see that, man? And this is, guys, this is in the 90s. So for them to have a $1 million award called the Unibomb, Ta Unibomb Task Force, this lets you know how big this was to them, guys. And a million dollars back in, uh, this is what, 19, early 90s? Uh, I'll go ahead and do an inflation check right here for y'all. The FBI suspect list topped 50,000 names. 16 years and 16 bombs later, the Unabomber had claimed three lives. And this is in around 94. Injured two dozen people. Two months after Murray was brutally killed, a letter arrived at the San Francisco Chronicle. It read, the terrorist group FC, called Unabomb by the FBI, is planning to blow up an airliner out of Los Angeles International Airport during the next six days. Okay, guys, $1 million in 1994 is the equivalent in purchasing power to about $1,999,163.29 today. So basically $2 million. It's basically double. $2 million back in the early 90s uh, would have been the purchasing power of, of today, which is wild that they would have that big of an award for someone like this. You don't see big rewards like this unless it's like a crazy, uh, you know, international terrorist, you know, like Osama bin Laden had a big reward like this. Um, so for the Unabomber to get this in the early 90s, crazy. That tells you... How bad the FBI wanted this guy. The threat had to be taken absolutely seriously because the Unabomber had, in fact, placed a, a bomb aboard an aircraft before. It wasn't lethal enough to blow the plane out of the sky, but we knew that, that his bomb-making ability had progressed enough that he certainly was capable of that now. The FBI saw to it that special security measures went into effect immediately at California airports. No one without a ticket was allowed through security. All bags were searched. Bomb-sniffing dogs checked everything. The Postal Service stopped flying the mail on commercial jets. Passenger. Imagine how much that backed up everything with the increased security, not being able to deliver mail. This guy single-handedly pretty much put a stop to commerce in California airports. ...are questioned about carry-on luggage that they've had. Uh, have you had this package in your custody and control during the entire time? Uh, did, you pack, did you pack the uh, suitcase yourself? Those type of questions all began from that day in LAX. The same day that the airliner threat was received at the San Francisco Chronicle, 
The Washington Post received a message from FC, a 56-page typed manifesto. The New York Times received a carbon copy of the manifesto the next day, as did the adult magazine Penthouse two days after that. He sent it to Penthouse. <laughs> hey, porn guys, I need you guys to go ahead and publish my manifesto to all these hoes. I need to get some bitches. Letter to the Post and Times laid out the terms and conditions for publication and agreed to stop the bombings if the Post or the Times published. The Special Agent Terry Turchi and the Unabomb Task Force receiving the manifesto was a huge break. Of course, when the Unabomb manuscript came in, that was big information, and this was a major break, and we all knew that it was a major break, which, if handled properly, could possibly lead us to identify the Unabomber. The manuscript, blandly titled Industrial Society and Its Consequences, was a meticulously written tract against technology, genetics, leftism, conservatism, and modern society generally. The FBI had many items of evidence collected from years of investigating this case. They needed to generate just one solid lead, one that could hopefully break the case wide open. Freeman thought the answer lay in publishing the manifesto. We very much were in favor of, of publishing it because after reading the manifesto, it was clear that someone had uh, had put their philosophy that it evolved over a number of years within the pages of this thing. Uh, and what can that do? Help you identify the person. It was recognizable. Somebody in reading this, we hoped, would would read it and say, I remember that guy. He was uh, sat next to me in class uh, at uh, such and such a university. After some public soul searching and discussions with the director of the FBI and Attorney General Janet Reno, the Washington Post, and the New York Times, the decision was made to publish the manifesto. The manifesto appeared in a special section of the Post on September 19, 1995. By early night, and here is the manifesto right here, guys. This is the Unabomber manifesto. Uh, Industrial Society and its future generally referred to as the Unabomber Manifesto is a 3,500-word essay by Ted Kaczynski, published in 1995. The essay contends that the Industrial Revolution began a harmful process of natural destruction brought upon by technology while forcing humans to adapt to machinery, creating a socio-political order that suppresses human freedom and potential. The manifesto formed the ideological foundation of Kaczynski's 1978-1995 mail bomb campaign designed to protect wilderness by hastening the collapse of industrial society. It was originally printed in a supplement of the Washington Post after Kaczynski offered to end his bombing campaign for national exposure. Attorney General Janet Reno, who we just talked about at the time, authorized the printing to help the FBI identify the author. The printings uh, and publicly around the printings and publicity around them eclipsed the bombings in notoriety and led to Kaczynski's identification by his brother. Okay, we're going to talk about this here in a second. But the manifesto, guys argues against accepting individual technology advancements as purely positive without accounting for their overall effect, which includes the fall of small-scale living and the rise of uninhabitable cities while originally regarded as a thoughtful critique of modern society with roots in the work of academic authors such as Jackie Alol, Desmond Morris, and Martin Seligman. Kaczynski's 1996 trial polarized public opinion around the essay and his court-appointed lawyers tried to justify their insanity defense around characterizing the manifesto as a work of a madman and the prosecution lawyers rested their case 
on it being produced by a lucid mind. So very interesting stuff, guys. Huge essay that he wanted out there because he hated technology that much. And, you know, I ain't gonna lie. He was uh, kind of right. I mean, look at how Instagram and social media is influencing humanity now, man. We got all these weird politically correct people. <laughs> um, you know, obviously he was crazy. Nothing justifies hurting and killing innocent people. But um, I guess in a, in a little bit of a way he was correct because it has made a lot of people's social health, uh, sorry, mental health deteriorate. It's made people less social. It's made people incredibly dependent upon technology and in turn has made a lot of people stupid. I mean, we can see the, what social media has done to a large majority of the young people nowadays being antisocial, awkward, strange, socially inept, um, low self-esteem, uh, lower levels of general happiness. So, um, yeah, I mean, an over-dependence on anything is going to mess you up. 1996, Ted Kaczynski's brother David had been doing some soul-searching of his own. The news reports that the Unabomber had connections to Chicago, their boyhood home, as well as to Berkeley and Salt Lake City, nagged at him. He got a copy of the manifesto and began reading. He read it in the hopes of erasing the idea that his brother was a killer. What he read sent chills down his spine. He recognized the language and content of the manifesto as being similar to that of writings by his brother Ted. David dug up as many old letters and writings of Ted's as he could find and compared them to the Unabomber manifesto. Both had employed the unique phrase cool-headed logician. David was distressed, but not yet convinced. Cool-headed logician. That's a unique phrase. He wrote Ted an urgent letter. Though he did not reveal his suspicions, he requested a visit to Montana. Ted refused his brother's request. Yeah, he was like, nope, you fired me over that bitch. I'm good, bro. David decided to call a private investigator to look into the matter. But the news that the private eye brought him was not encouraging. The private eye submitted the manifesto along with some of Ted's writing to be analyzed by experts who didn't know the parties involved. The experts concluded that the authors had a strong chance of being the same person. So guys, his brother basically did his own ind independent investigation and went ahead and turned his brother's letters in alongside the manifesto through a private eye. Private eye went ahead and submitted to some experts at deducting, um, you know, written word, etc. And they were able to conclude there was an extremely high likelihood that both writers, one of the manifesto and the one of his letters with his brother are the same individual, but they didn't necessarily know what was what. Okay. So that's an incredible find. And obviously, this is going to bother him because when you start, you know, reading letters from your relative and you see that it's written the same way as this wild manifesto that's been printed all over the place, you're, it, it's going to literally send chills up your spine. And also, guys, remember, this is in the mid-90s. Everyone was reading newspapers back then. It's not like today where you got your news off the Internet or you got it off, uh, you know, I mean, television news was a thing back then. But a lot of people read the paper, guys. The paper was the way people got their news back in the 90s, okay? I remember back in the day when I was a kid in, in uh, 95, my dad was reading the New York Post every single day, okay? That's how people got their news back then, all right? Stationary was real. Obviously, nowadays, everyone gets it through the internet, social media, Twitter, but none of these things existed in the 90s, guys. So if something was published 
in the Washington Post, New York Times, etc. You best believe people read it. Okay, that's how you went viral back in the day. Frantically, David continued his search for anything Ted had ever written to him. In an old trunk, he came across the essay Ted had sent him back in 1971. David could no longer hide from the reality that his brother might be the Unabomber. Wild. David Kaczynski was stunned. The and remember, guys, people had died. There were bombings all over, all over the place. Um, people were getting injured. So in his head, he's like, damn, what am I going to do? What's the right thing to do? Am I going to turn my brother in or am I going to let him continue to hurt and kill people? 1971 essay David had unearthed was eerily similar to the Unabomber Manifesto. Torn by the prospect of turning in his own brother on the one hand and endangering lives on the other, David Kaczynski made a gut-wrenching decision through his attorney. He contacted the FBI about his brother. In February of 1996, David Kaczynski told Task They were also able to identify him, guys, because he had a very particular way of writing certain things. So, for example, one of the phrases that the Unabomber would always say is, you guys know the common saying, uh, you know, you can't have your cake and eat it too. Well, the Unabomber would say, you can't eat your cake and have it as well, have it too. So he would flip it around, okay, because he, you know, he was one of those. And this is very common with guys like that are very intelligent, that are academics. They're extremely pedantic. They like to go ahead and uh, <laughs> they're, they, they care by minute details like that. So instead of taking the, you know, common phrase of you can't have your cake and eat it too, he would say, eat your cake and have it too. All right. So that was another way they were able to identify him as well through his writings. Force members of his suspicions. He gave a detailed accounting of Ted's life where he grew up, where he went to school, and where he now lived. He then turned over the 1971 essay. And then we were able to do a side-by-side -side comparison between that document that uh, was prepared many years before to a, the current uh, copy of the manifesto. And it was uh, very clear to us, uh, many of us in the task force, that, that the similarities were more than coincidental. The FBI analyzed the essay and found over 160 examples of similarities with the Unabomber manifesto, including common phrases and misspellings. The list went on and on. After 17 years, the FBI had its first... So in his manifesto, guys, he goes, as for the negative consequences of eliminating industrial society, well, you can't eat your cake and have it too, versus... You can't have your cake and eat it too. So he would flip it around, and that was a telltale. That was something that his brother was able to identify that that it was his brother that said that, because obviously that's a common phrase, and not many people reverse it in that way. And that was because Ted Kaczynski was a genius. He understood, hey, this doesn't make sense. This sounds better. Okay, and that was one of the ways they were actually able to identify him was through the manifesto compared with his letters that he wrote to his brother. First major suspect, Ted Kaczynski. Dozens of FBI agents quietly slipped into the small town of Lincoln, Montana. The FBI kept careful surveillance on Kaczynski's cabin as they laid out the case for a search warrant, hoping that the Unabomber would not strike again in the interim. By the beginning of April, enough information had been uncovered to justify the warrant. Among other things, agents were able to learn that Ted had traveled extensively 
Hotel records showed that he was always on the move immediately preceding a Unabomber event. Agent Terry Turchie submitted a meticulous 65-page affidavit outlining the government's case against Ted Kaczynski and requesting permission to search his cabin. We had been working all morning since about five that morning to pre-position various agent teams in different locations in the woods in Lincoln, Montana, and at a forward command post that we had established in Lincoln. Everybody had a different role. We had also had the evidence response teams coming in and they were staging at a, another command post that we had in Lincoln. So everyone was ready to go once the warrant was signed. Disguised FBI agents and a forest officer approached Kaczynski's cabin. They walked toward his cabin speaking loudly. They didn't want Kaczynski to suspect there was anybody sneaking up on him. The officers asked him to help identify a property line on their map. As he turned to get his coat, the officers pounced on Kaczynski. The suspected Unabomber was in custody. They finally got him, man. It took almost 20 years. Kaczynski was immediately taken for questioning to a temporary forward command post. Jim Freeman was about to come face to face with the man that had eluded the FBI for nearly two decades. He looked just absolutely disheveled. Uh, he, he looked like he was covered with soot. Uh, the agents <laughs> that had, had grabbed his arms to, uh, uh, to restrain him had soot on their hands. So Ted, you like to travel? Kaczynski admitted nothing and refused to say whether the cabin had any live bombs. As the questioning continued, the search of the cabin began. The tiny cabin was treated essentially like a live bomb. It was assumed that the place at the very least had live bombs in it, or at worst, was heavily booby-trapped. So now they got to search it, and obviously they got to take crazy precautions, guys, to go in there and make sure that they don't get hurt in the process of searching it. Because someone like this, that's obviously very intelligent, etc., you know, he's, he might booby-trap the place. Explosive ordnance disposal teams cautiously made their way into the cabin. Ted Kaczynski had not been formally arrested on any charges yet. As investigators searched through his cabin, they found enough evidence to charge him with possession of bomb-making materials. They found pipes, chemicals, wiring, batteries, and wooden boxes. That's a bunch of evidence right there. This charge would allow agents to hold Kaczynski until a more thorough search could be conducted. FBI special agent and explosive expert Donald Sockleben was responsible for quickly gathering evidence in order to obtain the arrest warrant. And here's a fo some footage, guys, of them actually picking him up from back then. I'll run that for y'all real fast. The actual real footage itself. Computer science is built. A page from our Sunday morning almanac, April 3rd, 1996, 20 years ago today. The day the FBI arrested Theodore Kaczynski, the suspected Unabomber, at his cabin in rural Montana. Beginning in 1978, a mysterious series of bombings across the country had killed three people 
and wounded 23 others. The bomb on the Yale campus today blew up in the computer sciences building. The targets were mostly either universities or airlines. Small bomb exploded in a mail pouch in the cargo hold. Which explains the origin of his nickname, the Unabomber. For years, the only clue to his identity was this single sketch of a shadowy hooded figure. And now it's from the receptionist. It was all there today, all 35,000 words of the Unabomber's message to America. Yep. A big break came in. Again, this comes back then, guys. That's how people got their news in the 90s, baby. Newspapers were the way to go. No Twitter, no phone, you know, no smartphones to give you your news. Stationary. Newspapers. When the Washington Post printed a long anti-technology manifesto from the Unabomber entitled Industrial Society and Its Future. All right. You guys can see when he got picked up, he was very disheveled. I mean, look at him right here. The same, oh, Barometric switch to... And now, a page from our Sunday morning there he is right there, look at him. Looks April homeless. 3rd, 1996. Living in the middle of nowhere. This is the day they got him. Years ago. And they said he was all dirty looking. Back to the documentary. He rushed to Helena to petition the judge. Sock Laban had been working on the Unabomb case for years. I think it was on the ride back to Helena that night when Pat Webb and I, who had worked on this for so many years, just sort of looked at each other and realized that maybe this was the beginning of the end. Uh, that we really did believe that night, if we hadn't believed before, that we had, in fact, caught the Unabomber. Ted Kaczynski was detained overnight until formal arrest charges could be brought the following morning. He was led through the streets on national television, looking every bit the part of an eccentric hermit. Yeah, there he is. This is real-life footage here. He was presented the next day before a judge in Helena on a charge of possession of bomb-making equipment. The search of the cabin continued. The room was a gold mine, but a dangerous one. Took them a while to search it. Each book, each binder needed to be x-rayed for explosive devices. It was clearly going to take a long time to search the tiny cabin. The evidence being slowly hauled out of the cabin was damning. A series of three ring binders with page after page of detailed bomb designs which matched the bombs used in many of the Unabomb explosions. Explosive powders of the type used in the bombings. Aluminum ingots and aluminum shavings on the floor, crucial bomb components. There was the infamous hooded sweatshirt and sunglasses. Yep, that's what they caught him with before. From the sketch, guys. Agent Thomas Monell, the expert on Unibomb devices, was also inside the cabin. The other evidence located in the cabin were electrical components and wire that were consistent with the majority of the Unibomb devices. We found a improvised or a homemade flip-type switch that was literally identical to three switches that were used in earlier bombs. And that's the importance of having someone, one guy handling all the evidence as far as an expert, because now he's there at that search. He knows exactly what to look for. He's able to go ahead and be like, yep, we need this. This is this is going to be solid. This matches what I've been able to um, find in my other um, bombs that I've been analyzing. So it's it's always a goldmine to have a, you know, a subject matter expert involved 
from the onset of the case and then be involved in the actual search of the case when you're looking for more clues and evidence. After almost two full days, the search came to a sudden stop. A package was found. Oh. It was wrapped like previous bonds with a return address. All it awaited was a victim's name and address for the front. So they, he it had a bomb ready to go. And determined to be a live pipe. Wow. Special Agent Sockleben had to handle the crisis. Well, from the x-ray, it looked very similar to the last bomb that had been placed, the one that killed Mr. Murray in Sacramento. We were able to safely remove the box from the cabin and take it down the hill to where we set up a site to deal with the bomb. The search slowly continued in the days ahead, and more and more damning evidence was seized. In addition to bomb-making paraphernalia and chemicals, agents also seized letters, notes, diagrams, and the Unabomber Manifesto. One irrefutable link between Ted Kaczynski and the Unabomber remained. The typewriter used for the manifesto. Bam. The typewriter that had uh, been used to type the manifesto wasn't found until literally the last day of the search, which took four or five days. It was literally in the la at the bottom of the last box that was uh, that was opened. <laughs> it had taken 11 days to search an eight. And that right there is a smoking gun, my friends. Make sure to like the video, guys, and subscribe to the channel. square foot room, but the FBI's careful approach had paid off. The man who had killed, maimed, and ruined lives, all the while taunting the FBI, was caught stone cold. On April 14th, the entire cabin was hoisted onto a flatbed and hauled away for further examination. The charges against Kaczynski had been upgraded. And they actually have it now, guys, in the FBI museum, that house. Um, and I'll show you guys real quick here. They basically went ahead and hauled And this is from their, their website here, FBI official website, FBI.gov, as you guys know. And uh, this is it right here. It's in the FBI experience. It's a part of their museum now in Washington, D.C. As you guys can see, they reconstructed it. Okay. And here it is right here. And let's just fast forward this thing. And there it is right there. So people can actually like look at it. Um, and, you know, but that's the actual one, which is wild. On June 18, 1996, Ted Kaczynski was indicted in Sacramento on 10 counts relating to Unabomber activities. One charge in the death of Hugh Scruton, three charges in the wounding of Charles Epstein, three charges in the maiming of David Gilerton. Now, you guys are probably wondering, why did they indict him out of Sacramento? The reason why, guys, like the video, by the way, is because Sacramento had the strongest um Air, uh, strongest case because people had died in that jurisdiction. Obviously, bombs went off all across the United States, so there was venue in different places where they could have charged them, but they're going to go ahead and prosecute him in the best venue where he'll get the most time, which in this case happens to be Sacramento because those were some of the where the strongest bombs exploded. And three charges in the death of Gil Murray. That day would have been Gil Murray's 48th birthday. New Jersey authorities filed more charges for the death of Thomas Moser. On November 12, 1996, selected visitors filed into a Sacramento courtroom for the long-awaited trial of Ted Kaczynski. In the front row was Ted's family, brother David, and his mother, Wanda Kaczynski. 
As Ted entered the courtroom, he turned his back angrily on his family members and never... Because his brother had told on him. And this is actual footage, by the way, of them walking him. ...or acknowledged them. Opening statements were about to begin when Kaczynski stood up and said... He and these are marshals right here. You guys can see from their badges. Um, this is the United States Marshal Service. They pretty much... Anytime someone is arrested and then moved through the judicial system, they're going to be moved with the marshals. And he probably has a big entourage here because obviously this was a huge case, guys. And at the end of the day... You know, he's there to get justice. They want to make sure no one attacks him or tries to kill him. He wanted to change lawyers. After a few days, the judge ruled that Kaczynski would have to undergo psychological testing. Federal prison psychiatrist Dr. Sally Johnson spent many days with Kaczynski. She concluded that Ted Kaczynski was mentally ill, but was competent to stand trial. And his defense tried to raise the insanity plea. The government's case against Kaczynski was overwhelming. For 17 years, the nice FBI brother. had nice prepared for this day. Examiners had re- Feds don't lose, man. gun here. Constructed and preserved every device related to the Unabomber's crimes. With Ted Kaczynski's arrest, they were now able to establish an irrefutable link between him and the Unabomber. Ted's desire for solitude would no longer be self-imposed. With no options, he pled guilty to all Unabom-related crimes. Wow. He was given four life sentences plus 30 years. He would never be eligible for parole. And he did that to avoid the death penalty. He was looking at death. For Agent Terry Turchi, the Unabom investigation shows the FBI's determination to never quit until justice is served, no matter how long it takes. For the people committing these crimes, who may go on for many years and not get caught, uh, they may become more arrogant, or they may become more complacent, or they may think we're never going to catch them. But I think for them and for the public, uh, the message has to be that we don't give up, and that we're going to stay with it until we solve it. And uh, certainly, I think that is what uh, we're called upon to do and what we need to do. In June 1998, Joanna Lee, an assistant editor at Simon & Schuster Publishing, received a letter from Ted Kaczynski with a prison return address. She knew he was the convicted Unabomber, but opened it anyway. Kaczynski wanted them to publish a book about his struggle. To this date, there are no takers. Oh, man. Nope. <laughs> They're just like, we're good, bro. That, my friends, is the story of the Unabomber, guys. So real quick, I'll go ahead and pull this up for you guys. This is his actual docket, okay, on what he ended up getting charged with, as you guys can see here. Um, on Pacer, you know, he was indicted out of the Eastern District, California, Sacramento, as we discussed before, why they picked Sacramento, because it's a stronger venue. He actually represented himself for a bit here, guys. You can see here, and then he had some attorneys as well. Um, and... You know, he got hit with transportation of explosive with intent to kill or injure, mailing explosive device with intent to kill or injure, use of a destructive device in relation to a crime of violence, transportation of explosive uh, with intent to in kill or injure, pled guilty, right, imprisonment for life, okay? And then here are all the, um, let's see here, amicus, amicus. I think these are people that were interested in the case. And then here's a plaintiff of the U.S., David Taylor, uh, Shelley, uh, right out of Cal Sacramento, U.S. Attorney's Office. And here's the indictment. He was indicted on 618. 
1996. So that tells me, guys, remember, they arrested him in April. So they probably filed a criminal complaint on, uh, you know, April 3rd when they arrested him like the day after to get him in jail. And then they went ahead and indicted him almost two months later. Uh, and then the arrest warrant was issued, but he had already been arrested, obviously. So they didn't need to actually execute it. That's why you don't see a, a thing here uh, entering. Um, and yeah, man, so this is the case. And he ended up getting life. And you guys are probably wondering, well, where is Ted Kaczynski now? Well, guys, he is alive. Here he is. Okay, here's his register number. And he's actually being held right now at Bun Butner FMC, which is over here in North Carolina. Okay. It's, um, it's the, uh, let's see here. 867 total inmates. Uh, it looks like it's a met, an administrative security federal medical center guys. He's 80 years old now. So he's probably, you know, of poor health at this point. And he was being held at the, uh, you know, the collar the Florence, Colorado one, uh, where he was locked up for 23 hours a day, one hour of, uh, you know, of, of um, exercise slash recreation. But let's see here what security level this is. FMC Butner security level. Okay. Status operational. Okay, so it has all security levels. Okay, with adjacent camp for minimum security inmates. So... Yeah, so it's a federal medical center um, da -da -da, who have special health needs. Okay, so it's for special health needs inmates. Uh, it's a division of the United States Department of Justice. We know that. It's located in Durham County, North Carolina. And let's see here. Notable inmates. Okay, so here's some of the inmates that are here being housed. Do they even have him in here? Probably not. Oh, Kaczynski's in there. Known as the Unabomber, pleaded guilty in 1998 to uh, building, transporting. Uh, so, yeah, he probably has some kind of health need. But these are who's there that's still alive. But, no, very interesting stuff, man. Very Oh, Joe Exotic's in here as well. Serving a 21-year sentence scheduled for release in 2036. Convicted in 2019 of animal abuse, eight violations in the Lacey Act, and nine of the Endangered Species Act, and two counts of attempted murder for hire. Yeah, I will cover Joe Exotic, guys, as well. Don't worry. You guys have asked for him for a while. So I will cover him as well. Okay, I'll cover him and uh, Michael Vick because uh, those are some fairly unique cases. It's not often that you get hit with um, animal mistreatment type uh, investigations. So uh, very interesting stuff. But uh, anyway, guys, hope you guys enjoyed that, man. Um, that was the Unabomber case. Again, one of the biggest FBI investigations to date, the most expensive and most extensive and longest FBI investigation he almost evaded the authorities for 20 years had it not been for his manifesto and writing in a very particular way and his brother coming to the authorities, they probably would have never caught him, guys. Uh, but other than that, man, I love y'all. Hope you guys enjoyed the show. And uh, hey, I'll catch you guys next week for another documentary. Like the video, guys. Subscribe to the channel. Um, you know, like I said, you don't have to donate a dollar to the channel. Just subscribe and like. And that's all I need, man. I love doing this stuff. Hope you guys enjoyed that episode. And I'll catch you guys on another live stream and another documentary. Peace. I was a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay guys, HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. No one else has these documents, by the way. Here's what FedEx covers. Dr. Lafredo confirmed lacerations due to stepping on glass.
murder investigation. I'm reaching in his jacket. You don't know. And he's positioning. Been on February 13, 2019. You're facing two counts of premeditated murder. Racketeering and Rico conspiracy. Young, young slime life here and after referred to as YSL. The defendants are uh, 6 9 and then this is Billy Seiko right here. Now, when they first started, guys, 6 9 ran with. I'm a fed. I'm watching this music video. You know, I'm bobbing my head like, hey, this shit lit. But at the same time, I'm pausing. Oh, wait, who this? Right? Oh, who's that in the back? Firearms and violent crimes. AKA, Pusha T violated. In order to stay away from the victim. Rapper Pusha T arrested after shooting at King of Diamonds, Miami Strip Club, injured one this person. Is the, this is the one that, that's gonna fuck him up because this gun is not crazy. Well, it happened at the gun range. Here's your boy 42 Doug right here on the left. Okay. Sex trafficking and sex crimes. They can effectively link him to paying an underage girl. I'm gonna love my trip to right, right. And well, the first bomb went off right here. Suspect to set down a backpack at the site of the second explosion. Inspired by Al Qaeda. Two terrorists, brothers, the Zokar Sarnev and Tamer Lynn Sarnev. When the cartel shipped drugs into the country. As this guy got arrested for um, espionage, okay, trading secrets with the Russians for monetary compensation. The largest corrupt police bust in New Orleans history. The days of the police are gone. gone. So he was in this.